a thought here and I want to talk about I, I sent you a note that I wanted to talk about the resolution to shame and I'm going to keep that promise here but but my approach to it is in and through the topic of eschatology eschatology deals with the teachings on the final events of human history and beyond but the way I just said it uh, it is the way that we often picture it is a kind of abstraction and what we miss I think in a lot of uh, biblical doctrines is the concrete fact or reality that we're faced with on a daily basis and we shouldn't lose that sensibility uh, in talking about eschatology we're not just talking about the end of history but we're talking about your end you know when that big truck hits you or uh, whatever whatever that might be that is that we all have an impending uh, uh, that our history is a limited thing we're continually fading you know and that is uh, whether we're talking about individually or corporately that the uh, corporate you know tribes nation states Babylon is gone you know Rome is really no more um, and but I still haven't got it I still haven't captured your attention fully I think until and this is I think the the role that shame can play here because shame is something we all I I think it is a picture of the holistic problem um, and if we think of what's happening in salvation and redemption as the resolution to that problem then I think we hit home in what's happening in eschatology uh, that our immediate experience of life is changed up because of our eschatological understanding and so when we, we can put all of the eschatological terms in shame language so you know what is the final thing that happens to people well it's a in scripture it's pictured as a final shame uh, and yet when we put it in that way it connects that final thing with our immediate experience so we talked about shame that it speaks of a physiological you know you turn red you run you want to hide uh, it's spiritual that it is a depiction of uh, our alienation from God from the group uh, so it's a corporate problem and so we've described shame as something a, a reality that's impossible to live with um, and we may then think of final judgment uh, is in fact it brings home that immediate possibility um, so by putting it this way I think it brings home the fact that uh, what is resolved you know we've talked I think the obvious resolution to shame if shame is the experience of what it is to die if shame is the real reality of alienation the resolution then is being incorporated into an enduring community that is this little group here our little community as I understand it 
Uh, this has now become key to my identity. I think it's become key to each of us in a way. And the danger, the fear that we might have is, well, can we continue? Does this, is it, and my understanding is, oh, that in, in the sense that, you know, you think of the little agape communities that form, the way that Paul is picturing that is a little slice of heaven. And part of what that means is it's an enduring family relationship. Uh, it's an enduring marriage relationship in the sense that uh, this is now uh, who we are. Uh, and so where shame then captures the problem of identity, you know, pride is the, the result of shame, and pride is subject to falling apart, that pride comes before a fall. But what we're talking about is a real resolution that we get at in the picture of baptism. And I'm still thinking eschatology here because baptism then immediately, you know, the depiction is a death and a resurrection. But of course that resurrection is a future resurrection that is simultaneously pictured in Scripture as being clothed in Christ. It used to be that they would baptize uh, the, uh, they would, everybody would strip naked. And the imagery is that, well, if Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, we, outside of Christ, are ashamed, you know, though we be clothed, but now we'll be naked but not ashamed once again, now that we're clothed in Christ. And so that's what I'm aiming at here, is to talk about that, there, that our eschatological understanding pertains directly to uh, our immediate experience uh, through the resolution of shame and the whole body of negative emotions that are connected to that. Um, what are some topics in eschatology that you would normally deal with? You would do, you know, we're talking about end time things, right? So, okay, hell would be one. Uh, Hell, whatever that category is, it's often described as the end point of shame. In other words, let me be not put to shame, that here is an ongoing or here is the culmination of shame. What would be another eschatological? category heaven okay which is is you know this is the the, the tricky thing here both with uh, heaven and hell but, but especially with heaven and we've done enough with this uh, is that we probably should not look at heaven in if we mean by heaven the idea of a disembodied reality with God, that is a kind of intermediate state, right? So what is Wright's phrase that uh, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world? Um, meaning that heaven comes to earth. And so the millennial kingdom, millennium just means thousand years, which I take to be directly connected to the church. Um, that when we talk, again, if we bring it back, 
that we have entered into this millennial kingdom in and through Christ, what that should mean for us in our immediate experience is that we're no longer desperate to save ourselves. If we understand the human enterprise, the kingdoms of this world, what are they all about? Well, they're in the business of securing themselves. They're in the business of saving themselves. And that is the desperate need that consumes people's lives. That's what sends people, you know, uh, that, uh, that's the driving force. And so when we talk about the millennial kingdom, uh, it is a, a resolution that is enacted in baptism through the church now so that we begin to live resurrection lives in the immediate present. What would be, uh, the ob- obvious one is the second coming of Christ, right? Um, and the, the picture in the New Testament is there's this hope and of an imminent return of Christ. Um, and we get that feeling in the New Testament that their hope of the imminent presence or return of Christ. And maybe we're, maybe we are thinking of is Christ gone? You know, if we're thinking of the return of Christ as, oh, he's been gone and now he's coming back, that doesn't quite get it, does it? The, the image of is actually that he will be made apparent, that he will appear. I assume that the ascension is not the departure of Christ, but Christ describes the ascension then as preceding the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the image is that where two or three are gathered, that Christ is there. But he will be made apparent or appear at the second coming. And that appearance then, if we are living with the idea that he's imminent, that he's here with us, I think is already we get the sense of the the closeness of that. So what is happening in regards to eschatology, or maybe I don't even need to qualify it, what's happening is that there is this impending nature of an end. And by end, though, don't think in terms, I mean, partly we're thinking of the ends of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, did that come true for the first century Jews? Well, in a sense, they saw one kingdom pass away. They saw the kingdom of Rome, uh, you know, come in and defeat Israel. That Israel, for all practical purposes, uh, passed away. Uh, in a, in a sense, we should always have that long view of history. That Christian hope is aimed at then recognizing that the kingdoms of this world are passing, uh, and that. Uh, are not then determinative of our present tense reality. Um, so, the resurrection, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the final judgment, um, are all the element hell, heaven, they're the, the, what's being talked about in eschatology. But what I would say is the resurrection is the key part of this. It's the turning point of all Christian thought. Uh, It is, belies I think the gradual progressivism of post-millennialism are you familiar with post-millennialism? 
the idea that the kingdom, you know, uh, is established, but it is only fully uh, established with the return of Christ or premillennialism, that is, post and premillennialism, are both then, uh, they separate the notion of the millennial kingdom from the church. But what I would say is, no, Jesus' resurrection for a Jew is the sign, you know, what is the, the resurrection? That's the sign of last judgment to a Jew. That's why it was so confusing to the Jews that here's Jesus being raised, but he's being raised in the middle period of history. Um, here is the commencement of the last days in Jewish eschatological thought. Are we living in the last days? Well, certainly, if we understand that there is no subsequent age, right? This is the last age. Uh, there is nothing going to come in terms of another, you know, uh, a covenant or uh, the. In, it, it is the final age in that. Now, how long this final age lasts, we don't know that. Um, but the point is that. Here is the resurrection in the middle of history. It's an interruption. It's a discontinuity in history. And our participation in the resurrection is itself discontinuous with our own history. That is, you know, the way that history normally works is that you are a byproduct of all that's happened to you previously. The resurrection breaks into that and said, no, this is God is doing something new. And we can think of that in terms of world history, but of our own history. And resurrection life, then, is the resolution to a life which I think our lives are characterized by being controlled by shame. And by shame, if you think of that, the system of terms, you know, death denial, fear, hiding, pride, uh, that it is the resolution to all those. You know, you know the term sui generis? What a sui generis. Trent, tell them what sui generis. I just heard it said before. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I heard you say it. I'm the only person that ever said uses this term. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the idea of something that is a, an event that is not caused by anything outside of it, or something that so God Himself is in a sense sui generis in that He's not controlled by things outside. And so, too, the way we would normally think of history working is not through sui, a sui generis event, but it's a series of one event causes another event. But what we would say about creation is it's sui generis, right? That nothing caused, it just that God spoke and it happened. In Romans 4, Paul compares two things. He compares creation and resurrection. He, he's actually comparing creation and the hope of Abraham. What Abraham's, you know, what God is going to do for Abraham is on the order of what he's done in creation. Re- re- resurrection is often connected with recreation, right? Think of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. Here is the, and Paul is going to often talk about creation and, and new creation. Uh, there is no explaining this event, uh, resurrection, any more than you can explain 
rest of history. Well, just to go off of that, in John chapter 20, it's the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the grave. The first day God began creation. There's the Sabbath fulfilled. There is the, the well, it's the, it's the, the, the beginning. And here is the completion. Uh, and so things are starting new. So we celebrate the resurrection on the first day of the week. Recreation has commenced. Um, so it's an act on the order of, of uh, creation. In the, in the New Testament, it's on the basis of resurrection that lordship of the lordship of Christ is established. Uh, you know that he is the Alpha and the Omega, and the picture is that he's even the conqueror of death. He's even defeated death. He's because of his resurrection in Romans one four. He's been designated Son of God, uh, in power according to the Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection is pictured as the vindication of justice. And justice or righteousness means things ain't right and God is making them right. What's the main thing that ain't right? Death. Death. Yeah, that that in the end the and that may not I don't know if how the if you get the sense in which our lives are controlled by the delimiting factor of death, I think this will hit you. Understand that all competition for limited resources ultimately comes down to yeah, we all have the limited resource of life. And so money or capital or whatever it is that we're in competition for, prestige or whatever. Ultimately, what's being traded is life itself. There was a movie, and I forgot the name of the movie, where they all... They they, time. Huh? Time on their own. Yeah, yeah. The, the, The way you were paid was you get more time. I thought that's a that's a stark illustration of the reality uh, that if you have more money in the in uh, uh, most societies, you get better health care, you get better food, you get be- you know you can just go through. In a sense, we are trading in time. What resurrection does is say that is all suspended, not just in capitalism, but every human community is built upon competition. And upon a zero-sum game in which the resource that is delimited is our life. What we're trading in is life and death outside of Christ. Uh, That is that you gain life outside of Christ at the expense of your neighbor, right? Uh, There's only so much stuff to go around and you better grab all the gusto you can. Uh, because what you're grabbing is your own salvation. So that we are pitted against one another because we die. Uh, because resources are limited. Resurrection suspends that. Uh, it is the, so when we say the vindication of justice, death is what's wrong. Death is the violence, the evil, that it explains that. And this is what the Old Testament you know, the prophets and others and just the Jews are crying out that God would make things right. Um, That 
things are being made right. There's a state of harmony. How can we have harmony and peace uh, and fulfilled relationships in a community? Well, in and through the hope of the resurrection. That here is an abundance of life. Um, and it is a counter-community. Well, Frank and I did a podcast last night, and Frank brought out a very interesting thing. I, and that is that in... Uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament and in what's happening in Israel, it is precisely the reverse of what is happening in the sacrifices in Egypt or the sacrifices of Babylon. That it is a kind of undoing of those sacrifices. Why would we oppress other people? Why would that interest us? Because that's a way of doing identity, right? That is, the people that I can put under my feet is the means that I raise myself outside of, well, sometimes in, you know, I'm always, inside, outside, I'm never sure, but uh, uh, unfortunately in the church, we don't get the difference sometimes in the economy. And so we oppress entire classes of people. Not just women, but women is one of the favorite. Uh, I was talking to Matt Welch, yesterday or yeah yesterday and he mentioned that in uh, Uganda where he's working uh, with the, uh, the suppressed group of girls they went down the church down the road and they said well we'd like to uh, I think they're the Karabajong that he said we'd like to bring some of the girls to church they said no they're dirty and they'll you know they're lower class so, unfortunately, if we don't get this picture in the church, there are no oppressed people. There are no, you know, foreigners. There are no... Uh, and if we don't get the picture of the resurrection, there's a phrase in the Old Testament, as greedy as the grave. I think, I think that in the wisdom literature it occurs. And that is that the grave is the very foundation of greediness. That is, that the grave delimits everything. The grave is the cutting off of every kind of, it's the delimitation, the cutting off of all resources. And so uh, the resurrection then is the undoing of the greediness of death. Uh, that our own literal human greediness is based upon a limited resource. Um, Money, you know, I, whether, are we trading in life or death? I'm never sure. <laughs> you know, uh, that, uh, what was it? The, you know, somebody's given their life, usually, in the economies of this world. They're, you know, it was a very well-known fact in the 19th century and 20th century that wage labor was a kind of slave labor. And that's why the trade unions and all these things come along, um, is the recognition that what is ultimately being sold, what we're all ultimately in this world's economy, is our own life. So resurrection is a suspension of that economy. Resurrection is a, it's a doing away. Uh, it should be at least here, right? We're all going to have to go out and, and deal with the economies of this world. But the point is we're no longer defined by those economies. If we are, if we let, you know, if we let Walmart determine who we are, uh, 
you you can uh, you know well that's terrible or if we let America determine who we are and sometimes I'm afraid if we let a perverse Christianity determine who we are that uh, that is precisely what is it, it is a kind of rejection of the resurrection of the power of the resurrection all of that's been undone we are no longer Jew nor Gentile male or female, slave nor free, even if you work for Walmart. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> That's a good one, because I applied for the distribution center, you know, last year or something, and I didn't get accepted, and it was like really <laughs> rough. I was like, what? Even the distribution Walmart center. Walmart <laughs> doesn't accept me? <laughs> so yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, I understand what it is to be rejected, believe me. <laughs> but so did Christ. Right? Yeah. So, he was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why did they kill him? Don't you know that one man must die that the nation would be saved? But that's always the justification. Right? Don't you know that we need some people to go and die? You know? And so the point is that Christ is exposing that kind of economy. As uh, Romans says, and this is about Abraham, but read yourself into this. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, uh, knowing or being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. That we may be as good as dead. We may be the outcasts of society. Uh, we may be, you know, he's a hundred years old. I don't know if any of us are quite there, but uh, they are completely incapacitated in providing for their own security or their own name to be uh, you know, generated in the future, which for them was eternal life. But the point is that if we understand the prototype of Abraham correctly, we'll see ourselves in that. That we're all as good as dead that we're all faced then with the tomb and the de, you know, desperate effort to save ourselves is precisely what will undo us. It's what will cause us to sell our life off. So Abraham, if we think of it again in terms of shame, I think I mentioned last week, the worst thing that you could be is a childless couple you know, incapable of having, or even worse, to be a childless <laughs> widow. Uh, because your children were the way that your name was propagated, which was equivalent to eternal life. Uh, and yet, he does not let that immediate circumstance determine who he is. He has a promise from God. We've all been given a promise for, for God. We know the temptation. Because Abraham himself falls into it, he's going to propagate his own name. He's going to take 
you know, another wife, or he's going to lie, or he's going to... And so that is our temptation, is to in some way imagine that we can secure ourselves. But Paul's point in other places is that resurrection is then uh, the hope that immediately impacts us, immediately gives us an alternative life. Uh, we could compare it, you know, that resurrection is the son returning, you know, the prodigal son returning to the awaiting arms of the father. It uh, corresponds to Yahweh's calling of Israel and the creation of a new people. Or it's the equivalent of in the beginning, God spoke and everything is changed up. So uh, we have, we've entered into a journey like that of Abraham if we get it. You understand that this, in a sense, should set us against we should be a kind of counter-cultural group here. And by counter-cultural, I almost hesitate to use that language because what's the reality? Is the culture in the world the reality or is the culture of Christ the reality? I think the culture of Christ is the reality, and we need to live according to that reality. But it's countercultural in the sense that it is a, a resolution to the way that Walmart would define you, or the way that dot, 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 the misogynist pigs down the road would define you, or, you know, whatever. Uh, that, I didn't mean to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that some misogynist pig somewhere <laughs> would define you or that there's always somebody there that is wanting to oppress right um, and the danger is well it's not just a danger I think it's, it's the reality that that will define you if you don't have an alternative community in which they don't treat you as second class in which they don't exclude you and so that's the the thing here in the the in the community of the saved that we can't and, and we can't play that game at all we can't refuse the caramajong we can't review refuse uh that's not who we are we're not defined by who we exclude uh, we've been called like Israel. Of course, one of the things about Israel is uh, that anybody could be an Israelite. That was always the case. I sometimes think that we need... You had to pass through a fairly you know, harsh regimen to become a Jew. Sometimes I think we've made this whole thing too easy. In the early church, you understand... Uh, that to become a member of the church, you went through a kind of period in which they literally, the elders of the church would examine you and see if you were a ready candidate for baptism. And only as you displayed the willingness to be a follower of Christ, that you were really serious about that thing, would they baptize you and let you in uh, to the church. Otherwise, the, you know, what partly what the deacons were doing in the early church was keeping people out. In other words, if you're not one of us, 
that in the sense of you're you're going to commit to this alternative community uh, you know I'm not saying that that we need to institute this horse but the point is if accepting Jesus is just this little thing you do in your head and it doesn't mean that your life is changed up in a revolutionary sort of way at least on the order you know let's not be Marxist let's go beyond Marx uh, the, yeah we get rid of every capitalistic economy and every kind of oppressive understanding so uh God's word has changed everything up. And uh, this is the way that McClendon has put it. As with creation, with God, so with God, as portrayed in the event, there is no gap between word and deed. Here God's supreme word is no mere command, but a, design, a divine self-giving. A word that is God's life-imparting self in action. And I, I thought here that what we have in the resurrection in the new kingdom is life on the basis of an alternative word. God has spoken in Christ, the Logos. Uh, and the image then of sacrifice with Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in the sacrifice of God in Christ. Uh, there is the same type of God giving himself to us. So the resurrection is the acted word in which God identified his own immortal life once and for all with the life story of Jesus. It's the, res it's the establishment of, uh, the reestablishment of the community of Israel on a different basis. As Paul puts it in Galatians, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. This is Paul's close to the book of Galatians. And upon Israel of God, from now on let no one cause trouble, for I bear, we did this last week, right? I bear the brand marks. I've been branded. I mean, he's talking about the brand, the brand that a slave would receive, the mark of a slave. Uh with ownership by Christ. Um, so the resurrection is a new way of construing the world. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. We can say that the end time has begun in Christ. A new creation has come to pass. We're in between epics. The old epic lingers and we have, you know, we're living between epics, but we're already participating in this new epic as we confront the old. So think here, you know, Colossians, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. That is, we don't do male-female. We don't do uh, Mexican-American. We don't do what, what other, you know, we don't do Pennsylvania, Missouri. We don't do... Uh, Japanese American. We don't anything the ways that we would normally do identity. We don't do identity according to flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of rec- what is the ministry of reconciliation except that we are brought into this new community on an equal basis fully affirmed in Christ uh, not counting their trespasses against them he has committed to us the word of reconciliation was it good to receive the word about junior is it good to receive you know the word that we're no longer defined by the way that Walmart would define us or the way that other people maybe even our own family or our own community uh, that's the ministry of reconciliation we've been reconciled to the fact we are entered into the open you know waiting arms of the Father So, let me close here. Were the first Christians mistaken in seeing one world passing away and a new world order being established? That's what's often said. Said, oh, whoops, they they goofed there. But no, I think that's a misreading. No, the the one world order was passing away. Uh, That... The world that they experienced, they did see vanish in 70 A.D. And so too, if we wait long enough, we're going to continue to see that this world is passing away. You don't have to live if you've lived as long as I have. I know more dead people than I do living people. Um, Most of the people I know have passed on. So the world is passing away. But is it? You know, if I if I have a right understanding, I understand, well, yeah, in terms of judging things according to the flesh. Um, Paul has said then, enact the ethic of resurrection. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7. Brethren, this time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should act as if they have none. We're not defined by who we marry. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make you full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. So one should no longer stake one's life on marriage, weddings, funerals asceticism, but a new ordering of life's priorities around the fact of the resurrection. So invest only what is due in a particular societal structure. Don't invest yourself in those things that are passing. Jerusalem fell, Hellenism perished, Rome was sacked, antiquity expired, and the church survived. It survived the Middle Ages, which has now vanished. It has survived the modern which I think is vanishing. It will survive the postmodern. The world is a fragile set of contingencies that may not last long. It won't last long. Maybe in a sense we are a fragile set of contingencies that may not last long. But we have an enduring city, a resurrection hope. And that's point one in eschatology. Any questions, comments on that? 
So if you were to summarize the connection between shame and resurrection, what would you say? Shame is what it feels like to die. Shame is being undone by the reality. In other words, it's not just a feeling. It's the reality of being given over to death. Shame is, you know, even if you manage to fabricate some pride for yourself, you're still subject to shame. Resurrection is being released from that immediate experience of shame. Shame penetrates. We're absorbed by it. It is all-consuming. Whether you, you know, it's not that none of us can endure a prolonged, but, well, no, our whole life is, in a sense, aimed at warding that thing off. So when I say death denial, I'm really thinking of shame denial. Is We don't, we don't go around saying, oh, I'm not going to die, in that sense. But we do go around saying, I'm not going to be put to shame. I'm going to ward that off. And so that it's that sense of the driving force in our life has been changed up if we are living according to a resurrection life. A real life implication of all of this is something like I've talked with you guys about anxiety and how the semester I've realized how much anxiety I have and all of that is just an attempt to avoid being put to shame. The things that people do, myself included, to avoid shame or anxiety inducing and only lead to death because anxiety is just embodied death. That is, yeah, that fear or angst or, you know, um, is, you know, I, I think that people can hurt you. You know, if you, and the idea is that if you let them, there's a song like that, isn't there? Um, that, in other words, that our fear, our angst is a driving force. And I would connect it directly to shame. It's not a. It's not a, a separate thing. Um, and so that that that's the way the writer of Hebrews talks about it. Paul talks about it this way. I mean, it's the idea of this putting off. You know, death denial is on the basis of fear. And it may be literally that fear is experienced psychologically by us. It, but it may be that we are able to suppress it. But either way, I think that what we're talking about here is the resolution that, that you can completely face that condition and it can be undone in your life. One, one way I think you've said it before is like shame is rejection and the resurrection life is like experiencing acceptance. If I said it, that sounds yeah. No, that uh, yeah, yeah. That that uh, you know, this is in Japan. The idea that when the group rejects you, the the you know the groups are definitive of who you are. That it's obvious that that gives rise to suicide and other things. I think that that what is obvious in Japan is just as much the case anywhere that we're always defined by the people, our friends, our community. And so, the, you know, that was the, you know, the, remember, did you remember the TV show Cheers? Mm-hmm. You know, it was such a warm show because, you know, if you went to the neighborhood bar, everybody would accept you, you know. 
Well, the neighborhood bar had more going for it in Cheers than many churches do, I'm afraid. Uh, because that's the idea, is that in this fellowship, in this agape fellowship, everybody knows your name. Everybody accepts you as you are. Hopefully better than the neighborhood bar. Our troubles are all the same. <laughs> you ought to go where everybody knows you. <laughs> oh, you remember, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a very churchy kind of show, except that it was at the local tavern. Uh, you know, and so that sort of acceptance of brokenness, and uh, that's the reality that, that uh, yeah, that sort of acceptance. That I'm afraid in white, middle-class, church-growth-driven churches do we see uh, necessarily a eclectic group of people or kind of a monolithic sort of group of people are you asking is everybody white <laughs> yeah that's the that was a fancy way of saying a bunch of whiteies go to your church uh, a lot of mong a lot of Mexicans, you know, a lot of black people. No, because the very way we do church is precisely that we do not want the Karamajong. They don't have money. They don't smell good. They don't talk like we do. They're not going to help us support this building and this ministry. To, to, to minister to oppressed people is not financially viable. If you've got an autistic child, you've got a handicapped child, you've got, is that helpful to, you know, well, that's, they're kind of odd, aren't they? Jason's podcast was really, really great about that. I mean, they, and they've dealt with that reality. You know, Fangie has been, she's worked for megachurches. It's not that some of them haven't tried. But the point is that it doesn't, that ministry doesn't really fit into what most churches want to do. If you're in the business of propagating the institution, you don't want any handicaps to the institution to be thrown in the way. Uh, is that too dark, Trent? Jump in there. Tell me, tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I don't know if I would say that universally, but I mean, that's actually something that our congregation is starting to do, calling it Champions Club, because we have some um, children that have a lot of disabilities and special needs and families who know families who would go to a local congregation if they knew the facility was geared towards children with special needs. Mm -hmm. um, so they're specifically gearing up for that, mm -hmm. building a new playground for that, things like that. So, I mean, that's just one in, I don't know how it's going to go either. Right. How, if you, you need people to make things like that happen who are willing to be a part of that as well. So I don't know how that's all going to turn out, but I would say the majority, that might be the mindset. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, I don't it's almost in a kind of a thing that is so under the radar that I think these things happen and we don't see that they're happening. Uh, 
in the and it doesn't have to be a big church this any church that if that this the, the the nature of institutions are that institutions propagate themselves they're in the business of the health of the institution and that's why I, I'm not I'm not setting any firm thing here but in you know this the word institution may be the thing that we want to get away from in the local fellowship I think going back to what you're saying overall, though, I do see more of is it's difficult for the institution to change what they're doing to accommodate for people who need to be reached out to. We're going to have to change what we do in order to meet the needs of these people, and that's just not something that a lot of people are willing to do. So if the if what you're doing is... First of all, if you're providing, and I'm not saying your church, sure. but if the church is providing a service for you know a kind of for the majority of people to consume, you don't. In other words, you can't address special people in that. If the service is more of a production than it is a fellowship, right. you don't want to mess with the production. And in Christian, I'm in no way uh, downgrading the importance of music. I'm not saying we don't do music. But if the music is a production number... Well, that's uh, the goal. <laughs> you have to entertain them to get them to come. <laughs> uh, you know. So... But I, I think the music may be the biggest, uh, may be a huge factor the way things work in the, the modern church. So. And just trying to find a way to then bridge the, if you're trying to reach out to somebody who's from a different culture or a different background, going back to a black or a white, you know, like, it's just sometimes the music is the issue or it's the, yeah. the preaching style or whatever it is. There's just so many different bridges to try to build to, to do that by the way that larger meetings, larger congregations do. And so the problem is if you got the two institution up and running and now you're deciding you're going to try to accommodate these people with differences, maybe you've already got an institution geared toward running a particular direction and you can't change that direction. And so maybe we just need, and I'm, I'm just suggesting this, maybe we just need to start all over. fellowship base rather than a business.